listening to a climate change this is matt mattern your host and uh, welcome to the program we've got a great guest on the program uh joshua spodek today's guest is going to challenge us to think differently about the environment to act differently uh joshua talks the talk and he walks the walk uh what does that mean well he stopped flying for seven years for instance um and he believes in systemic change through personal change uh some have argued that hey it takes the government and corporations to make the big changes and the systemic changes uh joshua seems to make the point that these two things are interrelated and uh, we can't kind of expect systemic change if we don't make uh individual changes and uh, joshua had uh, you know well-educated guy astrophysics phd from columbia as well as an mba author of uh, a couple of books one leadership step by step as well as uh, having uh, hosted i believe it's four ted talks and uh has his own pi- podcast this this sustainable life um joshua welcome to the program glad to be here thanks for having me and I hope I didn't get your name uh, mispronounced there. You got it right. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I was fascinated by a, a number of things that uh, you've written and spoken about. And um, what kind of brought you to the environmental movement as somebody who was an astrophysics <laughs> major? How did that connect you to the to the environment? If I go back... So I was born in 1971. I, I don't remember a time when I didn't know about the risks of global warming and plastic pollution and extinctions. And when I was a kid growing up, I'd watch nature shows and they always ended with, and this species or this environment is under threat and here's what you can do to help it. Oh, as an aside now, I think that's that's the whole thing now. The nature shows are only, this is the threat. There's no, here's this beautiful thing anymore. It's just, I mean, there's a b- little bit of that. But in any case, I always knew about it. If you would talk to me most of my life, I would say, well, what can I do though? I mean, I could maybe work around some edges a little bit, but what I, I, didn't see, I couldn't see how an individual could make much of a difference. And I, I also felt, well, only governments and corporations can make a difference on the scale that we need. And besides, they're the ones that cause the problem. They're the ones who should fix it. In astrophysics and, and, and with a PhD in physics, I, I would think I knew a bit more about say fusion than most people. So I figured there was an answer there. 10 years ago, something changed. And by the way, I should say, like I would take public transit if I could, I would, but I also flew around like crazy. You know, I was, I had a bucket list and I wanted to see all these different places. And I certainly felt like whoever dies with the most toys wins. So I definitely liked acquiring things. And I I didn't, you know, I try not to pollute, but I wouldn't really go out of my way and figuring someone else, hopefully, you know, I have faith that someone else will solve it. 10 years ago, something happened that I really did not intend to be an important part of my life. I had been, for various reasons, I was a little more in touch with food at this point. And I was joining CSA around this time and starting to learn how to shop at farmer's markets. And I looked at my garbage in my kitchen. And for the first time, I saw how much garbage I was producing and how much of it was food packaging. And I had this idea, 
sort of in line with things I'd done before. I'd stopped eating meat sometime before. I'd stopped, then went vegan sometime before that, or maybe it was after that. Anyway, I had these little experiments that I would do. And I thought, I wonder if I could go for a week without any packaged food. Now, intellectually, I knew that I could because packaging hasn't been around that long and humans lived without packaging for a long time, but I didn't really know how to do it. I'd grown up cooking, my family, the kids cooked, but it was always packaged stuff that I would just reheat, you know, buy a box of pasta, cook it, put a jar of sauce on, maybe fry some garlic and onions with um, some broccoli to make it a little special, but always something to throw away. And also living here in Manhattan, I mean, the best foods from all over the world are flown and shipped in from everywhere. Why wouldn't I like the best stuff? So I, I felt like I could do it in principle, but why would I? Why should I do something to deprive myself when it makes a big effect on my life negative and it doesn't really affect the rest of the world? And somehow I decided to do it anyway. Actually, it took me a while of an analyzing plant. Like, what do I do? Day one, day two, day three, how will I make this work? And after a few months of analyzing and planning, I realized that I was not actually doing. Mm. And I, I knew I wasn't going to die. And one day after six months, I just said, I'm starting right this second. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm just starting right now. And there are all these little questions of like, do rubber bands count? Do stickers count? Uh, what about stuff that's in my cupboard already? Is that finishing something that I already bought or whatever? So I just thought, all right, I'll answer these as they come. And what, one of the things I learned, I'm jumping ahead of here a, a step or two, but one of the things I learned is that if I try to solve everything before starting, I can then conceive of every possible, I mean, there's, there's an infinite number of problems I can come up with and therefore never be able to start if I have to solve all of them. Analysis paralysis. Yeah. Or the way I put it is if you give a bunch of economists and engineers a problem, a hard problem to solve and a budget and time and money to solve it, they will use up all the time and money and come back and say, we're almost done. We just need a little bit more of each. <laughs> Whereas if you just actually, if you, okay, some problems are life and death problems. This is not one of them, uh, going for a week without packaged food. So if it's not a life or death problem, there's a lot of, I got to say here, uh, I started wanting to do theory in physics, but switched to experiment. And I like experiment and doing, you solve the problem as it comes, you solve the actual problems that actually face you as they come. Mm -hmm. What now that means I'm going to solve problems that I face, but not everyone else's. But I also know that other people are also can solve their problems as well. In any case, as it happened, I started, you know, the first couple of days I said, you know, what, stuff that's in my cupboard, I'll finish. So I'm not going to buy any packaged food. So for a couple of days, I was just finishing stuff in my cupboard. One day I go to the store and I just walked up to the shelf where I normally start. And I look up and I realize, there's all boxes and bottles and cans and jars. And there's not actually, I can't actually touch food from where I'm standing here, even though there's food there. And if you, if you want me to go into more depth, I can. But this was, this was actually a big moment in my life when I realized that I couldn't eat without polluting. I couldn't eat, I couldn't live without polluting. I mean, I need to eat to live. And it was this existential moment of like, what was my life about if, if everything I did if every meal I've ever eaten caused harm to someone. And you might say, well, it's a little bit of harm. Okay, well, it's still harm. And it wasn't necessary. I knew that people have lived for 300,000 years without doing this. What got me out of the moment was that I was hungry. <laughs> and so I look over at the produce aisle and I'm like, okay, so I can get fresh produce. And I also decided already that I could uh, keep getting from the bulk section. So I had bags with me. And for the first time in my life, I got dried beans. 
So for the rest of the week and for the next six months, because I, I, I finished two and a half weeks without, any, without buying any packaged food. And I thought, I'm going to keep with this. Maybe not zero, but I'm going to minimize my packaging. And for a long time, I thought, well, so I was having a lot of like just, I don't know, steamed broccoli and asparagus on lentils with a little salt and pepper. And it was really bland. But I didn't like bland and I did like not polluting. So I stuck with it. And eventually I started learning what tasted good for me and I started really liking it. And I may have said this story a bit too long, but there's a reason for it is that exactly what I thought I would lose out, that's what I benefited more in. So I thought it would take more time. I thought I would lose flavor. I thought it would be more expensive. I was always concerned, what if I have some solution that doesn't work for others? And those are exactly the things that I benefited. It's cheaper, it's more convenient, it's much more delicious, it's more healthy. It makes things more accessible to others, to people who might live in food deserts. I mean, it's not solving the problem completely, but certainly the worst way to help some, the, the way to exacerbate problems of food deserts would be to shop at places that squeeze out farmer's markets like Walmart and Whole Foods and places like that. And so I had this mindset shift that I didn't intend to have happen. Why did I think that the things that would be suffering and deprivation and sacrifice actually benefited me? Why did I believe that? What other things might be that way? So that led me to challenge myself. Could I think of other things that might um, have that same pattern where I think it would be horrible, but it might be awesome. So a couple of years later, I learned that flying polluted much more than I expected. So I challenged myself to go for a year without flying and a similar pattern happened. Exactly what I thought it would make worse, it made better. So I don't know so if I've gone did, in too long. How did, how, did you, uh, how did you kind of resolve that conflict? I mean, I assume you still wanted to kind of travel from time to time. How did you travel without flying? Well, the main thing was, I mean, first, when I first thought of not flying, I thought, well, this is going to be the worst year of my life. My family is going to disown me. I'm going to go broke. I'm going to lose my apartment. I'm not going to know how to eat and I'm not going to have any fun. It only took a couple months before I started feeling like, oh, I'm actually connecting more with family. And I lost a couple jobs right off the bat, some speaking gigs in Europe that would have paid well, but it resolved. And it was through experience that I experienced the opposite of what I expected. I experienced that I actually connected more with family and sometimes not in person. Sometimes it's more distant, but it was more meaningful. And so I'd only planned one year. You said when you introduced me that I haven't flown for seven years. It's seven years and counting. I don't expect ever to fly again. I like it more this way. I've traveled by train. I've traveled by bike. I've traveled by, um, by bus. And I'm getting more out of it this way in, in a way that it's really hard to explain. Well, I think uh, any time that uh, we sometimes make a change, uh, some new something new opens up when you when you close that door, and I think we've all kind of experienced that in in various ways. And you certainly have uh, made some radical changes from the the norm here in the United States. Uh, maybe not in other areas, maybe that are more sustainable, and maybe we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, you had uh, talked to some indigenous folks uh, from Colombia, and I'd like uh, you to share with us a little bit about that when we come back from the break. You'll listen to A Climate Change. This is Matt Matter, and your host, and I have Joshua Spodek on the uh, program today. 
and we'll be right back with Josh Clark. You're listening to a climate change. This is Matt Matter, and I've got Joshua Spodek on the program, uh, podcast host of This Sustainable Life, as well as a four-time TED Talk speaker. Uh, Joshua, you were just talking about how you made, you know, these radical changes in your life uh, to reduce your carbon footprint and to live a more sustainable life. Uh, we kind of took a break. Uh, why don't you Why don't you finish up your answer on that? Yeah, I've recognized through it, all, through it all, I knew that one person's actions didn't really matter that much. That's how I felt. But also, you know, I teach leadership also. And so I know that one person can lead. So I really look at what I was doing as uh, practice. I think if you want to play an instrument really well or play a sport, you got to practice the basics. And uh, I'm jumping ahead a bit. I, I feel like well, I think I can relate to that a bit in that like I wanted to make some changes and I I bought a hydrogen powered car. So then I started to learn about hydrogen and and what it was as a fuel source. And just by making that change, I became much more educated about it. And I started talking about it on the program and started to talk to other people. It's like by taking that leap, you become more informed. And I think you had written something about kind of the corruption level of our leaders in making decisions that are, you know, bad decisions, uh, uh, whether it be Clarence Thomas getting money <laughs> from donors or Joe Biden agreeing to put drilling up in the pristine Alaskan wilderness that are going to generate 360 million tons of carbon from the uh, pollution that will be generated from that oil uh production uh you know these are not in in accord with what we want from leaders so if you have a leader that's kind of corrupt you you kind of corruption uh flows from that leadership you said a few things and and i more than i can comment on uh one of the things was that you bought the hydrogen car and that I would view as a, yes, that's how you learn how these things work is hands-on stuff. I didn't know how solar worked until I, I mean, I knew in principle how it worked, but I didn't know how many watts I needed and how many kilowatt hours I needed and so forth until I actually did it. Uh, in the case of, now, I would say that was working on engineering or management, but leadership, I focus on sustainability leadership. Leadership is about people and culture and beliefs and role models and stories and I don't see many people working on that. I think the biggest people argue about what's the biggest change that someone can make. By far the biggest is what influence you can have on others. Because if whatever you do yourself, it's nothing compared to what you can do if you can influence a hundred or a thousand or a whole culture. And no one's doing that. I feel like we live in times when people recognize there's like this command performance that we all have to play humanity as a whole, certainly this nation, as an orchestra together. And everyone seems absolutely steadfastly refuse, they refuse to practice their instrument themselves. It's, no one wa it's, it's as if they're saying, we got to play Carnegie Hall as an orchestra, but no one comes to see me play scales. That's a waste of time. We shouldn't play scales. In fact, we'll just have people make better instruments. We'll have some genius scientists make some great instruments that virtually play themselves. 
but absolutely not play their instruments. And they're like, no, BP tricked us into thinking that we should play our instruments when actually we should focus on. And the best way to play together is you got to learn to play your instrument yourself. I mean, I could take another, you know, it's basketball and no one's practicing dribbling or, or, uh, or free throws. And they think that somehow, but by contrast, one of my favorite videos on online is this video of LeBron James practicing. It's an hour of him just practicing with a trainer. It's possibly the most boring video online. It's just like shooting for, for some foul shots and, and uh, some layups and maybe some stretches and some, and except it would be boring except for one thing. We've all seen him play and we does the crazy spin moves and all the stuff that like makes the highlight reels. He doesn't practice that. He practices the basics. Yeah. And the basics in sustainability is yourself living sustainably. And anyone out there who thinks, but that's deprivation sacrifice, doesn't know. They haven't practiced. I mean, when I was a kid, I had to learn to play violin and I didn't like it. And there were times when I was practicing my scales, tears streaming down my face. And my mom was like, play, play, play. I'm like, ah, I don't like it. Now, I can see why someone from the outset might think, oh, if I have to live sustainably, I have to give up all the best food and I have to give up all the flying and all, I have to give up disposable diapers and I can't drive my SUV and I'm not going to get to see my family and I'm going to get fired from my job. It can, might look like that from the outside, but there's something about nature and community that's different than like, you might like this sport and not like that musical instrument, but everyone, this is the big discovery of my podcast. Everybody has deep, meaningful, rewarding, strongly motivating emotions about the environment. And as long as we tell people you have to do this or else, extrinsic motivation, obligation, they're going to, we lead them to feel like, well, it's something I don't want to do. I have to balance sustainability with actually living my life. And here's what happens when you actually practice it, which is why I'm practicing the basics is you realize, or I've realized it's joyful. It's fun. It's free. Where, where do you where do you start? I mean, as as somebody looking at, from the outside who who doesn't have that sustainable of a life, uh, maybe has made some steps, but would like to make a, a bigger step. W what do you what do you tell them? In my experience, the first step, really meaningfully, is the mindset shift. If you're doing it for extrinsic motivation because you're afraid that. I don't know, Bangladesh is going to be underwater if you don't do this. Unless you're Bangladeshi or spent time there, that's abstract. I, I mean, through my podcast, I've developed what's now called the Spodek Method, which is a way to, for people to explore their connection with nature so that they, if, to evoke what nature means to them and act on what nature means to you, even if that doesn't really make much of a difference in the world, because if it's meaningful to you, you'll do it again. And if you do it again, and you, the next time will be more. And you'll want to share it because it's joyful. This is leadership starts with where the, the other person is. Not with where you are or you think they should be. Or uh, Eisenhower said, I'm paraphrasing, leadership is the art of getting the other guy to do your thing for his reason. Well, if you don't know what that person's reasons are, if you ask me what's, what, what's something some, some person can do, and I don't know who that person is, I don't know... If I just tell them to avoid straws, I don't know if straws mean anything to them or not. So right. it really they, has they've to start. They've got to find their own, their own thing. Yeah. And it usually comes through, I mean, as a leader, as a leadership coach, leadership professor, author, I can work with someone and evoke from them one-on-one. -on -one, and that's why my strategy is to work with CEOs and executives of major polluting companies, as well as politicians and elected officials, because they're leverage points of systems 
So I can work one-on-one that way. People who listen to the podcast, sometimes they get the, the patterns, but you really have to start with where the person is. And so I, like, I uh, recall on you know your, one of your TED Talks, you were talking about what's your sledding hill. Yeah. And for you, it was this hill in Philadelphia where you went sledding as a kid. And uh, now there's rarely snow on that hill. And, uh, you know, so that's kind of like a, a basic tangible loss in the environment that you saw. You know, is yeah. that is that the beginning of the Spodek method? Uh, where you know, where's your sledding hill? What what's important to you? What you what have you or what have I seen as an individual that has changed in my lifetime that's meaningful to me? Or what kind of pollution is meaningful to me? Yeah, because you touched on something very deeply meaningful to me. The that time when I was in my kitchen looking at my garbage, I actually thought to myself, this may end up on someone else's sledding hill. So I'd been back home and saw this particular hill that was very meaningful to me. And now my sledding hill is important to me. I've had on my podcast many people, I had this one guy who's from Kazakhstan and he talked about their apple. Apparently, I looked this up, apparently the apple, when humans discovered that was in what's modern day Kazakhstan or thereabouts. That's when humans you know, started going around the world, they found apples there. And that was very meaningful for him. And, but apple trees might not be very meaningful to other, other people. I had a guy of super hardcore Trump supporter. And when I asked him what the environment meant to him, for him, it was small town America. Different for me than for others. And he lives in a small town and we talked about big cities. They're very polluted in his perspective. And that was uh, a big change for him. That was something meaningful for him. <clears throat> so when I evoked what those things meant to them, I could then say, based on what small town America means to you, I wonder if you, I invite you to act on that. And then he would, he acted on something on small town America. He chose to do something that was meaningful for him. In fact, he chose to recycle for the first time in his life. And he'd said, okay, I'll recycle for a month. And at the end of the month, there's a whole lot of details. But when I asked him about his experience, he really liked it. And he talked about, you know, he brought his recycling to the, some recycling place. And he's like, I got six bucks. You know, the money's not important. It's not really money, but it's not serious money, but it's, it felt fun. It was good. It was easier than I thought. And then he said this, he said, everyone should do this. Mm-hmm. And I want to repeat here. I'm, I'm, not big on, I'm not big on plastic recycling. And it was mostly Gatorade bottles he was recycling. But I want to point out a Trump supporter said, everyone should recycle. Not because he was imposing, not because we should, but because he enjoyed the experience. And he enjoyed the experience because there's no way I could have come up with myself what he should do based on, I don't know his life. Right. He came up with it with the proper evoking what meant something to him. Yeah. Coaching. Well, uh, you're listening to uh, climate change. I've got Joshua Spodek on the show, a podcast host of this sustainable life. And, uh, I want to talk to you, Joshua, about, uh, you know, your role role models, your heroes when we get back, uh, and we'll be back in one minute. You're listening to A Climate Change. This is Matt Matter, your host. I've got Joshua Spodek, uh, podcast host of This Sustainable Life. Uh, check out his podcast online. Uh, Joshua, just talking to you about who your role models are. A number of them, uh, for me, are Terry Tamman, who was a former 
head of the California EPA, who's done a lot of great work here in California, Mayor Rex Paris, mayor of Lancaster here in Los Angeles County, who uh, has taken his city to be a net zero city of uh, about 150,000 people. Senator Ben Allen, who's been a leader on plastics legislation here in California. Leslie Field, a Stanford uh, professor who has done a lot of great work on trying to develop a, a technology to preserve ice, particularly on glaciers and things like that. So, you know, those are some of my uh, role models or heroes. Tell us a little bit about who your role models and heroes are. Well, growing up, the big ones that are relevant here, I mean, Nelson Mandela comes to mind as, as someone who's dramatically changed culture, lived by his values. Um, Martin Luther King has always been big for me. Gandhi. In sustainability, something that hit me hard was a, a case of where a small number of people changed a global institution forever, were the abolitionists. And when I started learning about Thomas Clarkson and um, William Wilberforce and Equiano and people in England that led to England first uh, making the slave trade illegal and then slavery illegal in its empire. Slavery still exists as, as everyone will point out to me. But lately Abraham Lincoln and the movement in the United States to end, abolish slavery. I mean, it's illegal everywhere in the world now. And for 10, at least 10,000 years, it was normal everywhere. And that's virtually overnight. We took something that if you asked anyone at the time that it was around, I mean, we look back now with perfect clarity that that's a terrible thing. At the time that clarity did not exist. And there's no question in my mind that future generations, should we make it, will look back at us and say, what were you guys doing for so long? Polluting like crazy. And I believe that we can see with clarity what now we're, we're torn apart on, that the, the, amount of, the amount that we're polluting for comfort and convenience is just, when we're not the ones getting the comfort and the convenience, I think we'd consider it uh, open a shot. Then also on, on personal behavior, when, so people who don't know, I, I challenge myself to, after, okay, so I unplugged the apartment, I'm sorry, I, I stopped flying for a year and that kept going. Later, I unplugged the fridge to see if I could live without a fridge for a while because I read that how many places live without refrigeration and as did every human being ever up until about 100 years ago. And why should technology make me so dependent? <clears throat> and that led me to unplug my apartment. So my apartment right now is disconnected from the electric grid. And that leads me to go up and down the stairs all the time to the roof and uh, to, to where I can put the solar panels because I live in, <clears throat> pardon me, I live in an apartment building and I don't, I, I, my, my co-op board would never allow me to install something permanently up there. But I, like Teddy Roosevelt wrote or quoted someone else, do what you can with what you got where you are. And I'm not going to wait for others, governments and corporations. Of course, they're the hugest part of the solution, but that is the, that's the end of the marathon, not the beginning. It's the beginning of a whole other marathon, but that one with the wind at our backs. So personal action, my role models are like, you know, great athletes and great people who have really devoted them. LeBron James and Michael Jordan. Like what I'm doing is people are like, oh, you're so extreme going up all the stairs all the time. I'm like, that's nothing compared to what, like to play, even the, even like a bench player on, the, on, on any sports team does way more than that. And they enjoy it. I enjoy it. I don't enjoy, I mean, I enjoy doing something for 
alleviating suffering of others. And well, I guess I push back on that or I, I just question it. I don't know if pushing back, but just uh, questioning like, hey, uh, you know, we've got to make these enormous changes very quickly. Um, how can we we make that unless, you know, your your call to action is heeded by literally billions of people, uh, certainly tens of millions uh you know, within a very short period of time. Don't we need to have some technological breakthroughs as well? Well, we've had a lot of technolo technological breakthroughs that have exacerbated the problem. Mm -hmm. Starting from, uh, since well before the steam engine, which was more efficient and increased pollution. I'm sure the listeners are familiar with the Jevons paradoxes and things like that, rebound effects. And if you make a polluting system more efficient, more effective, you'll pollute more efficiently and more effectively. You may reduce pollution in some small area, but you'll increase it overall. I said earlier, very precisely how what I did, I expected things to get worse. And in exactly the places it got, I thought it would get worse, my life got better. I said that precisely for a reason. When someone is dependent on something or addicted, there's always a pleasure attached to it. So gamblers feel like winners, people who take meth, they feel like they have lots of energy and they do get these jolts of that pleasure but the rest of their life, they have less of that thing. So social media addicts feel connected, but most of the life they're actually isolated. And gamblers feel like winners, but they're actually losing money overall. Alcoholics feel like they're the life of the party, but they're actually losing social connection. If you say to someone who's addicted to something, consider stopping gambling, consider stop taking heroin. It may seem like I live by Washington Square Park in New York, there's a lot of heroin and crack and methanol, meth and fentanyl being used there, very sadly. And if I say to one of them, consider to stop taking heroin, to me, it feels like I'm saying, look at all this, they're always surrounded by garbage. They're surrounded by other people who are surrounded by garbage. They're taking great health risks. They're throwing their lives away. That's what it looks like to me. But from their perspective, there's two big things. One, it sounds like if I say, consider stop taking heroin, it feels like they're like, but that's euphoric or if it's meth, that it gives me energy, but there's something deeper. It also feels to them like, but this is my refuge. This is something good. It's warm. It's like family. It's very meaningful to me. And you want me to, in, in, a, in a cold, harsh world, that's, that's brutal to me. So if I say to someone, consider flying less, to me, having not flown, I've gone through with the withdrawal phase. To me, I feel like to me, it's like, stop polluting the world. Stop flying away from your family so much that you have to fly toward them again. But to them, it feels like, but I like the jolt of joy when I go to a new place. And it feels to them like I'm saying, take away your family. Consider not seeing your family again. Consider losing a job. Consider losing the source of warmth and comfort in a cold, hard world. And what I'm, so the way that I put this yeah. shortly is, you tell me what you fear losing and i'll tell you exactly what you'll gain and it's very hard for people to internalize this but if you think you're going to lose connection to family you will gain more of that if you think you're going to lose your job you'll actually have more control over your career if you think but this isn't fair to people living on two dollars a day this actually helps them more and so when you say people have to get on board the big mindset shift is to recognize this change, there will be a withdrawal period, and that will be painful. 
but on the other side of it, you won't want to go back. I'm not asking people to give something up. It looks like that, just like to a heroin user, getting losing heroin feels like a horrible loss, but it's a restoration of values that we have jettisoned of community and the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Well, I promise the listeners that uh, you would be challenging them to think differently about the environment and to act differently. And so uh, you are <clears throat> delivering on the promise for sure. Uh, yeah, I just call know, them heroin addicts. <laughs> yeah, it's a little challenging. Uh, but I think that, you know, those of us who are probably primarily listening to this show are, you know, get the fact that our consumption model is excessive and it is essentially an addictive type model that we we want more and more and more consumption and it it's like a never-ending uh need um uh, and so at some point in time that has a cost and and we're looking at the tremendous cost of an existential breakdown in our environment uh resulting from it at what point in time do we wake up and say enough is enough? And not just enough is enough, but what I'm trying to convey, one of the biggest things I'm trying to convey is that it's very easy to see the withdrawal. It's very difficult to see past it. I mean, for a gambler, a gambler, the idea of giving up gambling feels to them like they're going to lose money, but they're actually going to gain. So to, to get out of the the craving, the cycle of, of consumption that's leading out to all this pollution feels like we're going to lose comfort, convenience. I mean, the washing machine isn't, didn't, isn't that a labor saving device? Doesn't that free us from all that time doing all that backbreaking labor? But you mentioned, I, I haven't lived among uh, or, or actually spoken to indigenous people. I've had on my podcast many people who've lived among the Kogi and the San and the Hadza and the Tsimane and the Matses and various different um, indigenous cultures. They look at us and they say, why do you guys work so hard? Why are you so cruel? Like they, the idea to them of, they look at us and they, some do join us, but many of them look at us and say, you've lost freedom and, and equality and mutual support. And what's life about if not, if not those things? And we look at them and feel like often, but wait, what, what about anesthesia? And what about, um, flying around and they know about those i mean enough of them know about those things that they're choosing consciously a better life that we've we have access to and i'm not saying we have to give up all these things well one of the um i've uh regularly read the Tao te ching and one of the uh quotes from it is essentially at the very end of the version i have is that the uh the person who hears the call of you know you know, a, a civilization or country very close to him and does not go to investigate it because they're happy where they are. And, uh, you know, that's a challenging one for me because I have a bit of wanderlust, as I think lots of people do, to want to go visit and to want to uh, kind of expand their horizons. But I think that uh, quote, that passage in the Tao is saying, hey, uh, being content where you are, where you don't have to go see this, see that, see the other thing. If you're really content, uh, those things aren't necessary. 
So uh, you're listening to A Climate Change. This is Matt Matter, and I'll be right back with my guest, Joshua Spodek, uh, podcast host of This This Sustainable Life. Uh, We'll be right back in just one second. You listen to A Climate Change, and I've got Joshua Spodek, uh, who's a podcast host and four-time TED Talk speaker. Um, Joshua, you know, you've lived a sustainable life, or you're certainly working on that, and very, you know, very diligently. And I guess I want to ask you a question about all the different technologies that are out there that are trying to... Uh, work on having a more sustainable economy. I, I had some guests on the program who are in the garment business, and they're using fabrics that are um, kind of sourced from reusing other fabrics and things of that nature. And uh, so, what is it? Re is it a kind of a, a false hope to do something like that? Or do we need to do uh, be even more radical or, or change, make more radical changes in our lives to um, have a sustainable uh, economy and a st- sustainable life? You started by saying that I'm living more sustainably than, than some and more, definitely more than myself before. I want to clarify, yes, I'm doing that as part of leadership exercises in order to lead people more effectively. So, and also to explore the frontier, to see what's out there, to see what's possible, because if people don't believe it's possible, they're not gonna try. So if someone thinks what I'm doing, if someone thinks that what I'm doing is just about me, they're completely missing the boat. They, you, you can't lead someone to live by values that you live the opposite of, that just doesn't work. So. Otherwise, I'd have no integrity or credibility. I wouldn't know what I was talking about. So it's really, that's just the table stakes. It's just getting started. But that is by no means the final end. So if someone thinks, oh, he's just trying to do that and he hopes he's leading by example, that's not it. Mm-hmm. So that's a, a small piece of it. Uh, and I do enjoy exploring the frontier of what's possible. So uh, technology, if I were going to go, I mean, I had on my podcast this woman, um, uh, Beda, Maxime Beda, who wrote about the fashion industry. And I don't know if people have seen the movie, The True Cost. And it's like the number two pollution is fashion, something like that. Yeah. I mean, if I were going to work in fashion, the biggest thing, most people, a lot of entrepreneurs seem to go for, what are some new fabrics that we can use that are less polluting? To me, it's really, it's not that we don't need more sustainable things. We need less unsustainable things. How can we put the brakes on H&M and Zara and, and all those companies? Because the amount, I think it's something like for every shirt they sell, they throw away 10 or nine, something like that. That's got to go away. I mean, that's that kind of, that part of our culture of disposability. And um, I would work on how can we decrease H&M and Zara and their peers, Uniqlo, more than how can we increase the more sustainable things. The big problem is the pollution and the attitude behind it. Right. So I guess. Also, oh, sorry. Also, this, this idea that fashion, it looks great. And then a month or two later or six months later or a week later, it's horrible. Must get rid of it. So how much stuff that was like, oh, must get is in landfills a lot. So that philosophy of disposability 
that's something that's what that's the leadership focus is the mindset the role models not there's an engineering thing which i i do not want to take away i fully support how can we make more sustainable things because i wear clothes i think humans we wear clothes so we do need ways of making sustainable stuff but we've been doing that for 300,000 years so that's not a hard problem that's been solved before with much less technology but how do we change the mindset so that we're not getting stuff knowing we're going to throw it away all the time i mean why not just get one pair of jeans to last you for a long long time instead of I think we wear jeans the average, an average of seven times. That mindset, it's got to go. I don't think it's making people happier or healthier. I think it's impoverishing people too. Right, right, absolutely. What about, uh, we'll switch the car industry and uh, electric cars or hydrogen cars and you know all that. Is that uh, also a false promise or should we be investing uh, billions and billions of dollars into that? Uh, or should we just be uh, trying to drive less? Well, we it's difficult for people. Uh, okay, I live in Greenwich Village. I can walk 10 minutes to get most of the necessities. And most people are saying, well, I can't do that, Josh. Yeah, I know. So, I mean, in New York, I think of the Cross Bronx Expressway as like, no one likes it. It's a big mess. It tore a community apart that was a working class community. This is Robert Moses back in, I think, the 50s. And people built highways into cities at the time, not knowing what was, what was to come. So I don't ascribe ill will to them, but no one wants to live next to a highway. They want to live at the end of the highway. So over the decades, people moved out to the suburbs and then the cities were impoverished and the communities torn apart because the highway, who wants to live in a community with a highway in the middle of it? It's, it's loud, it's noisy, it's polluting. So people adjusted. So if we took the highways away, people would adjust and come back into the cities. Now, I'm not talking about specifically how to do it, but as long as those roads are there, people are going to drive on them. So San Francisco had this thing. Apparently, there's some study about the Embarcadero Highway that they were like, "How do we? what can we do about this? And some people came back and said, we should tear it down. And people may have believed the, the study, but no one was going to tear down this highway. And then an earthquake comes and they realize, okay, we got to tear it down because there's, it's, we can't fix it. Someone, there's probably details I don't really get, but no one wants to put it back up. They're actually, it's better without the highway. There are lots of highways that the world would simply be better without. Tearing the bandit off can be painful. I don't, I'm not saying how to do it, but as long as those roads are there, people will use them. We re, rewild the road. Well, I got to tell people about this podcast or video series called Not Just Bikes on YouTube. And this guy who lived all over the world in different places eventually settled in Amsterdam. And he, he starts thinking, why do I like Dutch cities so much? And he starts doing a series on city planning on what's so great. I'm sure people know Amsterdam is full of bikes, but it's not just bikes. They actually were going to build highways into the middle of Amsterdam. And the citizens protested and made it have not that. And they've been doing decades and decades and decades of trial and error and figuring out how to make the city more livable without cars. And it's much more accessible for old, for young, for infirm, for poor, for rich. And everything, I mean, they did, it, it took them decades, but they had no role models of taking the highways out of what I'm saying. So I'm not just saying some pie in the sky stuff. It's, it's happened before deliberately, as well as accidentally with the San Francisco, but the roads have got to go. I mean, I'm not saying politically how to do it, but as long as they're there, they will generate pollution. And whether it's pollution in the form of internal combustion engine uh, exhaust, or it's battery powered stuff that's 
the mines and the resources required for that, the minerals. But the alternative is livable cities with 15-minute plans. I mean, I don't know anyone who wakes up in the morning and thinks, I'm going to go watch some videos on city planning. And yet this guy gets millions of views because it's really intriguing. So in terms of cars, we've got to change the system so that the natural way to get around is not highways. And isn't, you know, and when you don't use highways, highways are isolating, they're polluting, they're isolating in that you're in a car and it's defensive and other cars are threatening. And I mean, we like to think about being on the open road, but most people's time in cars is stuck in traffic. And we like to think of electric vehicles or hydrogen vehicles as not polluting from the tailpipe, but they're polluting in the manufacturer, in the, in the manufacture of them. And they're not particularly commercially viable right now, uh, the hydrogen ones. I mean, you have one, but the, man, a bicycle and a city designed for human, I mean, there are cities with millions of people, or at least a million people 2000 years ago. And they got all the people in and they got all the people out and all the waste out. And why is technology right. making us less? Right. I, yeah, I get what you're saying. And uh, quite frankly, I have some experience in that model and that uh, I moved to Venice uh, about four years ago, Venice, California. And, uh, you know, it's a little bit denser than the area I used to live in. And so it's a lot more walkable. And so I don't use my car you know, probably 50% of the time, 50% of the days I do not get in my car, maybe more. And, um, and it just feels actually like a luxury. I mean, if you, if you told me before that not using my car would be a good thing, I, I don't think I would have completely bought it, but now, uh, you know, not using my car, it feels great. I mean, I don't want to get in my car to get, to drive here and drive there. It just doesn't seem like that's a benefit. It actually feels like, oh, that's more stressful. It's it's so much nicer to just take a walk to go to wherever. And uh, so it is along the lines of what you had just shared or shared a number of times during the program of why you with the thing that you think is is going to be such a, a difficult thing to give up actually just opens up new pathways in your life. And, uh, you know, it's a fascinating journey and, and I guess you don't really experience it until you start, which is also something that you shared is like, Hey, just take a start and, uh, you know, these things will start to happen. Um, great to have you on the program, Joshua. Um, Definitely, uh, everybody should tune in to This Sustainable Life, Joshua's podcast, and check it out. Check out his TED Talks. Um, you can see all of our older episodes on um, climatechange.com. Check that out. Um, please go out and uh, do something, everybody. Volunteer to help. Take some small steps today. Use less energy. Pick up some trash. Drive less you know, fly less, consume less, and engage with people that you know on the environment and go out there and be a leader. Have a great week. Thank you for tuning in. <laughs>